0: Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever you are, welcome to our new our show. I'm really excited about this, but there's a couple things going on. This is my first time I've ever interviewed someone not from a studio, um, not with any production, from my home in Soho, New York. Um, so so bear with me. This is kind of weird for me to be sitting in a chair in my house doing a broadcast interviewing someone I've known for a really long time but whose book, Beyond Success, is a must-read for everyone. Um, I can't wait to pass this out to our thousands of employees globally, but it's just a really great read. And like I said, none of the authors that I'm bringing on are talking about sales motivation. And, you know, it's more about life and, and their experiences and, and how to, you know, manage in this crazy world. So, without that, I'm gonna bring Jeff on. Jeff. thank you so much for being on this broadcast. I am so excited to have you on. How are you today?
1: I'm good. I'm good in this groundhog day world that we're living in these days. I don't know what day it is what month.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just telling some of the, the some of the good parts and the bad parts of what's going on is you get to spend more time with your family. And all that. But the weird part is working from home, which was something I've never really done. There's no beginning and middle end to the day. And like you said, I have no idea if today's Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. And it's just bizarre.
1: Yeah. The days are just running into each other with no breaks, it seems. A little little crazy.
0: All right. So let me ask you a question. And and, and in full disclosure to the entire audience watching, I met Jeff about 25 years ago. Um, he was in an office with me. He was a friend of a friend. And then, as starting out in the wealth management business, working nights, talking to people about how to invest, he said, I have this passion of mentoring and speaking, and I'm, I'm going to make it happen, and I'm going to do it. And speaking to him, I go, yeah, I could see it happening. But as a 20-something-year-old guy, do you really think that, you know, 20-some-odd years later, he's going to write an incredible book, build an incredible company, and make it happen. It's just – it's an incredible success story. Did you really think when you sat with me as a 20-something-year-old saying that everything you told me when we sat down has
1: basically come true, did you really know it was going to happen? You know, what I I did know is that if I didn't have a plan – that I tried to adhere to, that I, I wouldn't go anywhere. I, I think that was my guiding principle back then. <clears throat> I just truly believed that I had to set the course. Otherwise, just going to meander around. There was no such thing as GPS back then, but I have right. to say, it, it kind of reminds me that if you jump in your car and you don't put an address in, your GPS isn't going to take you anyway. So it's this great technology, but, You've got to set the the destination. So I I, I definitely did it. Did did you get there
0: faster, longer? Was the road there's no road that's exactly going to be straight anyway? It's like a wave. You don't know where it's going to come to shore. But did it kind of go the way you expected it to go?
1: No, definitely not. It was it was a meandering roller coaster versus (laughs) a, a straight line. I would say definitely. But that's life, you know. I think what gets you through the meandering roller coaster is if you have a course and you've set a course, um, you know, otherwise you, we always have these choices that we have to make, or at least it seems like we always have these choices that we have to make. And if you don't have some North star that you're following, then those choices are extremely difficult at times because they're never like black and white, you know, choices in life are always incredibly gray. Um, without any hindsight, with hindsight, every choice is easy, but without any hindsight, it's great. I, you I love fun. the
0: North Star comment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because um, my head of strategy, Sylvie Harton, um, has said from day one when we started this organization, North Star, every employee needs North Star. We need a North Star. You need a North Star. But I want to jump right into your book. Right. I loved reading it um, because right. I loved your journey. But here's a question I got. Were you kicked out of the wealth management fraternity? Because you made a statement in the beginning of your book. Money won't buy you happiness. All right. So is <laughs> is you know. So where did that come from? And how true
1: has that been? You know, I, I definitely made more money earlier on than I thought I would. I mean, I, I didn't grow up with much money at all. I think the most money my dad ever made was probably thirty eight thousand a year. And I, I remember hitting a point where I think I made that in a month. And uh, I just realized that I had this concept in my head that when I had X, I would feel Y. And uh, when I got X and I didn't feel Y, I started questioning the whole dynamic of, you know, really our society's belief system that you, in order to be happy, you have to get this or that. And, uh, I just realized that it wasn't true because I got X and I really wasn't any happier. Um, yeah. So, Hey, I haven't so, kicked out so, yet, <laughs>
0: so, so let me, let me ask you a question. Cause this makes me think of, of my own life in a way. Um My dad never made a lot of money. My dad never was an overachiever and it was the biggest motivator for me. So yeah, your yeah. dad, when you're talking like, what was he one of your biggest motivators? Not, not because, of his success because of not because of his success because that's how it was for me.
1: Yeah. My dad worked retail in the seventies and uh, you can recall what retail in the seventies was like, we were going through a deep recession and I mean there were, I didn't really know much of this till later because I was the younger sibling, but my older sister did tell me later on that there were weeks where they really didn't know if they were going to be able to put food on the table. And I, I just saw his lack of control. And I realized that money, his job choices, were a great contributor to his lack of control. He also had a horrible attitude, but anyway. <laughs> but, but I just you know, no, didn't I, have that lack of control when I grew up.
0: That's a whole nother conversation and a whole nother show, because I think what motivates different successful individuals and their family and what they came from, I, I find it really fascinating. Hey, before we go on, what was your first job you ever had?
1: I worked at the, well, I did have a paper route at about 10, but I worked at the English Town Flea Market selling children's clothing. Um, That that was the first steady job that I had, I would say. But my first job out of college was at Merrill Lynch. So, I mean, I started at Merrill Lynch in 1986. Can't believe I'm saying that, but wow, that was a long time ago.
0: Yeah, It is a long time ago. I used to deliver a penny saver door to door. That was my Sunday first job. Um, You talked about the new currency being attention, where attention goes, energy flows. I kind of dig that. But why is attention, do you think, is our most valuable currency?
1: You know, it's interesting that we wrote the book. um, I really started writing it back in, like, 2006 or seven when I started thinking about writing it. (laughs) And the Internet was really, you know, Becoming a primary force in our personal lives and our working life. And there were books that were starting to be written or articles, at least, or white papers calling it the attention economy. And I realized how much companies were willing to spend just to garner someone's attention because they realized that if they can get your attention, they could ultimately drive what you spent your money on. And then, when I started delving deeper just into the roots of our monetary system and our economic system, you know, it really is about convincing a lot of people that they need a lot more than they really need in order to keep the momentum going. And uh, it really dawned on me the connection between that and my own lack of fulfillment or happiness. When I started making the kind of money that I thought I would, that it was really where we were putting our attention was the most critical piece. You know, let me ask you a question because
0: I was literally just thinking about it and it happens to be my theme for my, my video this week to my employees is what I've learned via COVID. You know, we're, we're finding out during our, our lockdown, staying at home, that we really need a lot less than we think we need. And really the most valuable commodity is interpersonal connection. Yeah. Do, you, do you think when we come out of this that
1: the attitude is going to be a little bit different? I hope. I mean, I, I definitely have a lot of hope for that. Um, certainly after World War Two, the Spanish flu, if you look back in history, we did come out of those major events, uh, even 9-11, a little more kinder and gentler for a bit. Um, and then we seem to lose it, unfortunately. Um, I think if you don't get to the root of how our economic system works and what we value, then, you can't get a long course correction on that. And, and I think that's critically important. And you know the work that I do around yep. sustainable investing and in climate change. It's really a drive to change what we think about use of capital for.
0: You're, I agree. And you're, you're extremely passionate. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But one of the key parts that I loved about the book is what is the investment plan for our attention? You, you, you break it into like four pillars. Can you share a little with the audience? Not enough that they don't have to read the book, but enough that they they understand where you're going with it.
1: Yeah, sure. And I I love acronyms uh, to an annoying point. (laughs) So uh, I named our principles core because when I wrote the book, um, really the hot thing in gym workouts at that time, which was really new, was working your core for working out from your core. And it really, to me, it was a good metaphor for how we can work on our minds as well. So I named it core and it's, connecting to source, owning your unique expression, redirecting your attention into the future, and expanding your awareness to include others. And uh, very simply, I realized that if we didn't go back to the root of where our attention was wandering from and try to start at that point, that we were never going to gain control of our attention. So whether it was meditation or walking or physical activity, running, whatever we could do to try to still our wandering mind was critical to our ability to function well. And we go into that, obviously, in a lot of detail in the book. And I've been an avid meditator since I'm 13 years old. Um, but wow. then the second part of it is if we don't own our unique expression, you know, we, we define in the book that when you align your unique creative expression in service to the world, that's when you're truly successful. And it, while we're all quite similar, we're all the same species, um, we basically, I think, come here with a unique gift that we can contribute to the world. And I think that everyone has that. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't find it or it isn't nurtured in a lot of people. But I think if we work to really find what our passion is, that usually within our passion we could find our purpose. And And that's really critical because it's – If it's not the destination, you know, if getting the million dollars or the billion or the hundred thousand, if if that doesn't cure and satisfy and fulfill, then it's the journey that does. I mean, it's quite simple. It's not the destination. It's the journey. Certainly, it's been Uh, thousands of years.
0: I'm all about the journey. In fact, I I end a lot of my broadcasts with my team is – that I'm just excited I get to go on this journey with my team, right? That to me is one of the best parts about it. It's not where it ends up. And I think every facet of my career, the journey has been the best part of it. It's not the end. It's just how we get there. In pillar one, you quote that dimension is really eye, is really eye opening to me. The mind is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. How do we reclaim our mind or how do we reclaim power over our mind?
1: Yeah. So. You know, basically, we have random thoughts running through our head all day long. And uh, the nature of the mind is to wander our attention across those random thoughts. And we, I always start in my classes when I've taught meditation in the past with, you know, most people think they are their mind. I mean, they think their relationship between the conversation they're having in their head is really the essence of who they are. And I always ask people, well, then just for one minute, in the beginning of class, I don't want you to think anything, not one thought. And it's odd because I've been doing this a long time, but for most people, the fact that they can't do that and really no one can do that, if you take the next step from that, if you can't control those random thoughts, then why are you giving so much attention to them? And then when you start to study that meditation, you realize that your emotional state is constantly being battered around by whatever thoughts you happen to pay the most attention to. And the only thing i found that stills that or regains control of that is meditation. And it's not, you know, meditation is the perfect metaphor, again, for the journey, not the destination, because you don't meditate to get anywhere. You actually meditate to make the journey more enjoyable and to have more stability, emotional stability, especially throughout the journey. So have you missed one? How many days of meditation have you
0: missed in the last, well, you know, honestly, you've been doing it since I, you're 13?
1: I have four kids, and uh, I, right. I for a long time, from 13 on, I meditated all the time. Some days I was meditating for hours. Now I do annually a silent retreat for five days. But my my mind, most part, and, and this is a, a guilty admittance, but for yep. for most, Part, I don't meditate as much as I used to, um, but I did for years and years and years, meditated um, all the time. Um, so I still try to find my moments and I've tried to go to activities, whether it's working out. But I, I can practice meditation these days without sitting on the cushion. You know, so it's kind of like going to the gym. Um it depends on what you're doing the rest of the day. Um, you you can exercise all day. You could take the stairs rather than the elevator. You could park as far as you want in the parking lot and walk to the um, entrance of the store. So I, I try to practice meditation, really, I love that. most of my day.
0: I love that. All right. But all right, I got to digress for one second, though. You do a five-day silent. I, you spend five days once a year, theoretically. You don't talk yeah. to anyone and kind of like a monk and do you do that in private or you do that around your family?
1: No, I, I actually do it at a silent retreat. I, I actually last year I hosted the five day silent retreat and there's about 30 people. It was a place called Peace Village in uh, Haynes Falls, New York. This 300 acre people retreat. Um, that is run by a spiritual organization called the Brahma Kumari, which I'm not a part of. So this is not a, a pitch, um, oh, yeah. but a beautiful spiritual organization run by a hundred and three year old woman, um, which right. she's still so, Jeff does, it, does.
0: Does it get easier day three and four, or by day four going into five, you're like, I can't wait to start talking again, I can, or is there, like, how does it how does it, how does it move?
1: Most people, um, I'd say eighty to ninety percent of the group doesn't want to start talking again uh, after the five days. About 5% have some kind of crisis. Uh, they tell you that you need to have a deep uh, meditation practice or spiritual practice before you go, and some people don't, and, and they wind up having a difficult time. But 90% of the people, and last year, nobody had a difficult time. Some people came right. out of the gate wanting to talk incessantly, but the majority of people, including myself, really don't want to start talking again. I'll tell you the most wonderful thing about a silent retreat beyond meditation is that when you're around a lot of people that you don't know, so most of the people are strangers, and you can't talk to them, all the labels of how you define yourself drop away because the only connection you can have is through your eyes. So yep. you have actually leave with deeper connections and friendships than you typically make in the world of, of talking. All right. Offline.
0: I want, I want to talk to you about this a little bit, but I want to get back into one of the things I think I've played my whole career on my intuition or my gut. Right. And the times that I haven't listened to my intuition, intuition have been the biggest mistakes in my entire career. So you talk, you talk about intuition playing a big role in our creative expression. How can all of us better access our intuition or act? Or is it actually listen to our intuition?
1: Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing. We mostly listen outward. Um, so we're listening either to our own conversation and dialogue in our head. And that dialogue is not the deepest aspect of ourself. So it's actually in meditation. It's easier to start by listening to outside sounds, whether it's, you know, in nature or birds or anything, to try to get the focus off of the stream of attention. And then once you do, you try to move to listening to the body. And the body really is where our intuition comes from. And it's typically from the gut. And if you pay attention to the signals your body is sending, the majority of time your your body's telling you when something isn't right.
0: There,
1: there's an interesting thing that, I mean, I hate to pick a dark subject, but um, I was watching Girl with the Dragon Tattoo um, this morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but there's a, a line in the movie where the killer says to Daniel Craig, he said, it's unbelievable that being discourteous is a bigger fear than actual death or the crime. That That people so don't want to hurt other people's feelings that they actually, when their intuition is screaming at them to run, yep. If someone just lights them in politely, they'll fight their complete intuition. And I I use that because it's a great example because your body knows your body's screaming at you to go the other way. And your mind, you're right. Oh no, the formalities of life call on me to have to accept the invitation to tea with the psychopath. So it's, it's I'm telling you, the biggest mistake. Yeah.
0: Yep. The biggest mistakes I've made is when I didn't listen to my intuition. And I think I was 40 before I really believed in radical candor of really telling someone what my intuition and what I'm feeling and, and being able to confront it. So it, when I, when I read that in the book and when I, it just, it just so hit home. And then one other pillar really killed me. I, I mean, in a good way, I consider <clears throat> like I didn't actually do this, but I think I invented the word positivity, right? I am all about positivity. The, the glass is always half full. There's tomorrow's always gonna be better, Um, and I think maybe it's part of my upbringing. But in general, I truly believe that, and I want to pass that on, right? And but you actually go, you know, so your third pillar is about more we use positivity in the in the present, the more we change the future. Really resonated, right? It resonated with me. What is the best way to put this pillar into practice? How would you advise someone who's not Mister Positivity or someone who believes in it like I do? who came to you and doesn't feel that way, how can they use that in their in their daily life?
1: So it's interesting. In in the book, we say to actually start with strangers because there are currents of dramas that you run with the people that are closest to you. And changing your behavior initially with the people around you is usually actually met with resistance and not acceptance. So we tell people in the book that just start with the person at the supermarket. I mean, is a perfect time. You know, you're, you're dealing with yep. people that are working at the supermarket under incredible stress right now so that we can continue to eat. But, you know, having kind words for people during the day, reaching out with a smile and thanking somebody regularly. I mean, most of these people get treated all day like second class citizens by people that don't have to work those kinds of jobs. And so I, yep. I try to go out of my way regularly to thank people that, serving me in that way um, because I am grateful for it and then it changes them and then it's like a ripple in a pond I mean one will yep. change the attitude that you trigger in someone else then they treat the next person online a little bit better who maybe goes home and treats the kid a little bit better and you don't know where it where it ends really
0: but you know I I, I totally agree there, there was this saying and I'm gonna I'm gonna totally mess this up is everyone dies twice in their life, right? They die the first time when they die, and the second time they die when someone stops talking about them or start stops remembering or doing something that they do. I I try, I hope that the people that I work with or clients I work with, that one day down the road somewhere, something that I did, you know, they remember. Something that I taught my kids, they find themselves doing again when they have kids. It is, I, I think, the way you put it is so spot on. And it's why everyone, you got to read the book for a couple reasons. One, it's actually a great book, but, but two, you're going to learn like how Jeff tells the story is really incredible. So I have two final questions for you and then I'm going to let you go back to your family. <laughs> if I interview again in 10 years, hopefully we'll see each other over the next 10 years. But if I interview you in 10 years from now, where do you think you're going to be in your life?
1: You know, I'd like to be uh, I already am working a lot with the U.N., but I'd like to be a lot more active on climate initiatives. And I I do as much as I can now, but I'd like to be involved at the biggest level possible in trying to influence how we use capital to stop the terrible damage we're doing to our planet. And uh, not many people will know this later, but we are recording this on Earth Day, which I find quite beautiful. So. Today is, is Earth Day and we did wow. a couple of today. That. Um, We had a white paper in Forbes this afternoon on how to influence climate through your portfolios. So I, I, I hope to be ultimately known for that.
0: I got to tell you something, Jeff, already I think you're known for ESG, just what I've seen socially on what you're doing. So you should check out not only the book, but what Jeff's doing. Listen, at Entrada, we are as an organization, really into ESG. We've added the carbon calculator. Every product that I sort of run, PR distribution, web hosting, streaming, virtual events, I mean, everything is very carbon neutral. And we are so big believers that we're seeing it because we work with so many IR organizations that ESG is is such a hot topic for them, and no one has figured it out. And what you're doing with your with your TV stuff you're doing and what you're doing with the U.N., I think it is so needed right now. Um, I, When did you wake up? I, I how did you even get involved with the U.N.? And then we'll wrap this up. And how do you if you had to give someone advice, what should they think about if they believe in this? What should they do? How do they get the first step forward in it?
1: All right, two big questions I'll try to answer quickly. I, I got involved yep. with the UN um, initially really because I worked on a film called Planetary, and it's a great film if the audience wants to check it out. There's two films, Overview Effect and Planetary. But Planetary was with Bill McKibben and Paul Hawken and Ron Garan, the astronaut, and they really opened my eyes up in 2014 to the issues around climate and that it affected all of us and the planet. Um, I do believe that the pandemic that we're dealing with right now is kind of like an early warning system for climate change, because it's the first thing that we're dealing with that affects the entire globe without yep. singling out any It's the borderless, you know, crisis. And uh, so is climate change. So it just opened my eyes up. And I realized that if we don't start moving the capital markets to address the problem, the governments and NGOs alone would not or would never be able to solve it without the money in the capital market. So that that drove me, and that's been driving me for the last I love that. on that. I love that. And then that. if you get started on it, um, you know, thankfully today, six years ago, there wasn't much, but Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, is probably the best starter on what you can do around sustainability and climate change. Um, there's a good book by Bill McKibben, too, called Cradle to Cradle, about how to create products that actually don't add – to the trash and the recycling um, problems that we're having today in in the world.
0: So here's the last question for you, Jeff. So here's my final question. So can you make a promise to me Um, that we don't go 20 years without talking again? Absolutely. I promise. Yeah. All right. I promise to. You look amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You you look amazing. Hopefully Jeff and I will get haircuts soon. We were talking about that before we went on. And Jeff, enjoy the family. Stay safe. Thank you so much. And just a reminder, everyone, an incredible, incredible book. And I'm I'm just flattered and honored. And I like to be able to say, I knew you win, man. So that makes yeah. me feel really good. I
1: just I want to say that the new edition of the book has rocks on the front. So if people see a white cover with rocks, it's the same, oh. Oh, just the newest. edition. Okay. So Just want to we'll add make that. sure
0: we post, we'll, we'll post that in. Thank awesome. you so much, Jeff. Have a great day. And I really appreciate it. And from me and everyone in the
1: organization, have a great day.